hello and welcome once again to Raging and Eating. This is Rossi, better known as Chef Rossi, owner and executive chef of the Raging Skillet. And how the hell are you? Well, you know, it's kind of gorgeous out right now, almost wherever you are. Okay, yeah, yeah, we've had some crazy thunderstorms and we've had some tornadoes and we've had lots of fires and we've had lots of people dying and we've had floods. But you know, other than that, it's been kind of nice out, right? Well, doesn't that sound selfish? Oh, yeah, yeah, you're dying and your house just burnt down and you're caught in a flood and you're in a tsunami. But, you know, it's kind of gorgeous where I am. Oy, people are so selfish. Well, I hope you're having gorgeous weather. And currently we are, although we're supposed to have a thunderstorm tonight, but doesn't matter. I just got back to NYC after a nice break in Provincetown, Massachusetts. And I did a little exploring this year. I went to Montreal with my girlfriend and we ate our way all through Montreal. I think I gained at least five pounds. The only thing that kept us from blowing up was the fact that we walked everywhere. And we went around Toronto to see my fabulous friend Iwaney and had a grand old time there. And we went to Provincetown, of course. But then I also did some more exploring. I went to New Bedford. Have you ever heard of New Bedford? New Bedford, Massachusetts. And it's, it's a colonial town, I guess a city, really. Really has a lot of history from the 1700s, all sorts of George Washington slept there sort of places, you know. And for a long time, New Bedford was really having a rough time. Lots of crime and drugs and ruin. And I remember um, passing through New Bedford a few times and just almost wishing I had a bodyguard, you know, it was a little rocky. But in the last uh, decade or so, it's having a huge renaissance. And I had heard about it, but I really wanted to see it for myself. So my girlfriend and I spent a couple of days in New Bedford and we walked all over the downtown historic district and saw the beautiful old buildings and we ate fabulous food and talked to the locals and we saw some rainbow flags. And I left feeling downright excited. You know, throughout my life, I have had the experience of seeing cities fall into ruin. I mean, really. I remember when I was a little girl, the most exciting place in the world was Asbury Park, New Jersey. I mean, there was a big department store there called Steinbeck's. It was sort of like Macy's in New York. And we would go there and you would go up the escalator and these women who were covered in powdery makeup would come and try to spray perfume on you. Well, they tried to spray it on my mother anyway. And it was this giant department store. It was so exciting. And to us, we lived in Bradley Beach, which was only just a town over. But to us, going to Asbury Park was like going to New York City. I mean, it was really exciting. And there were the rides and the boardwalk and bumper cars and the palace amusements. Well, the palace was an exciting, I mean, for a kid, it was so exciting. There was ski ball, there was a carousel, and if you could get the ring, you would get a prize. There was all sorts of fun things to do. And my little friend and next door neighbor, Ronnie Hout, his father, I guess his father was like a professional carny. 
you might not say he wasn't the most elegant person, I suppose, but he had the coveted position of running the carousel in Palace Amusements in Asbury Park. And that meant he got us lots of free rides, but more importantly, he got us lots of free prize tickets. And so we were able to reimburse them, and I got all of the James Bond action figurines. So that year, I think it was Goldfinger. I got Goldfinger and James Bond and a couple of other ones. I can't remember. I mean, it was really exciting. So we were like, yes, we're going to Asbury. It was so exciting. And one day I remember going to the main drag there, Cookman Avenue, with my mother. And I guess we were on our way to Steinbeck's to get sprayed with perfume. And a really scary kind of scroungy guy was harassing, went, to, went over and was harassing my mother for money. And she just kind of grabbed me and ran into the store. And when we got out of the store, we looked around and there were a lot of these characters. So I was too young to really understand what was going on. But I guess what had happened is that Asbury Park had fallen into a big pit of crime. And I didn't really get it. I just knew suddenly there were all sorts of scary characters and there were broken lights and things had changed and my beautiful favorite place in the world, something happened to it. It like just all of a sudden fell off a cliff. And later on, I had the same experience with Miami. I mean, as a little kid, we would go and we'd see our relatives and there were big signs for celebrities I don't remember who they were, but like Tony Bennett kind of Las Vegas sort of celebrities. And then one year we went to see our relatives and it wasn't like that anymore. There were lots of gangs of kids. They looked sort of scary, young adults hanging out and things were sort of sketchy and dark and edgy and weird. And I didn't understand it, but I just thought this is that same thing that happened at Asbury Park. It's like as if it was like possessed by a ghost that made everything kind of dark and scary. Like I said, I didn't quite get it. I was a kid. But then later on, I got to have the opposite experience. I got to witness Miami rising like a phoenix. I'm like, oh my God. Where there were street gangs, there were roller skaters. Where there were burnt out buildings, there were like boutique hotels. And I got to watch Asbury Park rise, where there were street gangs and, and fights and crime and everything else. Suddenly, you know, there were rainbow flags and a little cafe and a new hotel. And the Salvation Army building was turned into a hotel. And, you know, all these kind of cool things started happening. So I guess I have gotten to see the rise and fall of a few times. And I got to say, watching the rise is much more uplifting than watching the fall. Um, although, admittedly, I do wish I had like a few million dollars. I would have done an awful lot of property buying during the fall, you know. But how can you know? Well, some people know, but I'm not one of them. I mean, I know, but I can't afford to do it. You know what I mean? Anyway, but I digress. So watching New Bedford, I didn't really watch its fall. I just kind of checked it out once or twice. But seeing the city rise like that, it's really exciting. And I talked to one of the locals and he said, well, first what happened is the bunch of artists came out and started renovating things and showing their work. 
And then the gay community followed the artists. And that's how it always goes, right? Like in Provincetown, Provincetown started as a Portuguese fishing village for the most part. And then the artists came. I guess the first big wave of artists, I believe, was in the 1920s. And after the artists came, the gay community came. And between the artists and the gay community and the locals, they turned it into a Shangri-La. Asbury Park, between the artists and the locals and the gay community, a Shangri-La. Miami, between the artists and the gay community and the locals, a Shangri-La. Except that often what happens is after it turns into a Shangri-La comes greed. And then everything gets really pricey and the artists have to leave. And then, you know, things get a little rough. I think lots of anti-gay activities started happening, certainly, in Miami. A lot of the gay community relocated to Fort Lauderdale just because no one seemed to be protecting them. That happened a while ago. And of course, now, I don't know. It's pretty hard to be in Florida if you're gay. And certainly, you don't feel loved and appreciated. And I'm torn about what to do about that. Like, should all decent, liberal, gay people and the people who love gay people and the people who are into equality and people who care about black Americans and the people who care about women and about freedom of choice and, you know, people who care about people. Should we all just abandon Florida and just let the white supremacist, the white supremacist, homophobic yahoos and DeSantis keep it? I don't know, you know, a lot of people feel that way. Um, of course, I'm sort of like maybe the opposite would be good. Maybe we should all descend on Florida and start voting and get rid of these people, you know. But this is not a political podcast. I'm just a loudmouth girl making my opinion. So I'm all over the map today. Anyway, my point is I love seeing a city rise. It's exciting. It really is. And so if you haven't, go check out New Bedford. It's really exciting to see this kind of thing happen. You know what I mean, Jelly Bean? So I've had a back and forth kind of couple of weeks, some great time off and ran back and catered a giant wedding and then ran away again and ran back. But now I'm really back. And I mean, this is my, was my first day back in the office. So here is a caterer's first day back. And I tried to have a nice peaceful day back, right? So what happened today? Well, the fire department is coming for an inspection. And I thought, good, let them come, you know. But then I suddenly realized that we are actually due for our fire prevention inspection, which is like this thing you do before your inspection. And so at the last minute, I had to schedule that. And then I realized we were actually due for our exhaust cleaning, which is the thing you do before the fire prevention. It's like all these things you do before your inspection. So Suddenly, I'm spending thousands of dollars getting all these things happening at the speed of sound. And I'm like, oi vey, could I just have a calm first day back? So I'm back and I'm doing my work. And all of a sudden, all this muddy water comes running down my front windows of my kitchen and into the front door. And it is the guys who were repointing the brick had this bright idea to wash the brick. It somehow hadn't occurred to them to put a tarp down or something. So all that muddy water went down my windows and into my kitchen. And I'd like to say that I was polite about my response, but I screamed out just about every curse word I know. I must have scared the uh, you-know-what out of them because 
one of them came by too, came downstairs and started washing my windows and um, trying to clean up after himself. But that was kind of a crazy first day back. I am officially complaining. You know, it is so hard to be a business owner, especially in New York City. But I digress. So I love seeing the cities rise. And it's interesting that I understood. I, sort of, I didn't quite understand it, but I kind of did as a little girl seeing them fall. It was so depressing. But I love to see them come back. And I don't know what it is with me, but I think I've been entertaining my entire life. Like, I remember being a little kid, and we moved around a lot. Because my parents, I don't know, they kept thinking maybe in the next town would be better. I think they thought if they kept moving, somehow their kids would not be so rotten. And it doesn't really work that way. But, um, you know, we moved around a lot. So I learned that if I got a couple of packs of gum, and we went to a new school, I could make friends by giving out sticks of gum. And so I loaded up on gum, and every time we moved to a new school, I would give out sticks of gum, and it would make me some new friends, you know, early entertaining. And then in high school, well, I discovered all sorts of ways to entertain. Certainly once I discovered marijuana, that was a whole new kind of entertaining. But I didn't want to bring friends into our house because my mother was a terrifying hoarder. I mean, it was floor-to-ceiling crap. It was very embarrassing. You know, there was like these little trails that you could get through what used to be our dining room of floor-to-ceiling crap. So what I did was I emptied out the front porch, which was an enclosed front porch, and I, I set up a couch and some furniture, and I would shut the door, and I would entertain my friends on the front porch and then just pray to God that they never had to use the bathroom. Because if they had to use the bathroom, they'd go into the house and they'd find out my secret, which was that my mother's hoarding paradise was terrifying. But eventually I figured out a way to never let them in the house, but to have them go around through the garage and use uh, my mother's second bathroom that you could actually use without going into the house. Of course, you still went into the garage and discovered she was hoarding enough food to survive two or three nuclear wars but that's beside the point. For the most part, I tried to keep them on the front porch. And what I would do was I, was ent- I would entertain by giving them th- uh, various things to eat. And the rule was that they always had Snickers bars in them. And that is when I discovered how to make my Snickers treat, which wound up in my book, The Raging Skillet, and which wound up being a treat that we give out whenever the play, Raging Skillet, is performed, as it has been all over the country. And if you want Raging Skillet to come to a theater near you, just give me a buzz. You can always find me, Chef Rossi. I'm on Instagram, Chef Rossi NYC. I'm on Facebook, Chef Rossi NYC. I'm the Raging Skillet. You can find me, trust me. You do want this play. Anyway, so the way it worked was I figured out, well, if I melted marshmallows, that you already knew there's all kinds of things you could do by melting marshmallows. You could make Rice Krispie treats and things like that. But if I chopped up Snickers bars and put it in a frying pan and melted it with marshmallows, and then when I got this goop, this Snicker marshmallow goop, mixed it up with potato chips, I'd have to kind of crush the potato chips, I could kind of make a sort of a Snickers potato chip crispy. I mean, it was really dirty. The cleanup was horrifying. I think my mother cried whenever I made one of these concoctions. But I would press it into one of my mother's lasagna pans. And when it was cool, 
you know, enough to handle, I would cut it into little pieces. And then I would entertain on the front porch with a, you know, a joint, something decent. Like sometimes it was my friend Kim's brother's homegrown and sometimes it was sensimilia, but I preferred pot that was not that good. I didn't really like getting that stone. I like to just get a little stone. But we'd have a little a little marijuana and we'd have my Snickers treat and I'd have the windows open to keep the smoke kind of blowing out. And that's how I'd entertain. And then um, later on, my neighbor, Mr. T, was a sweet old man who lived next door. I visited him all the time. And he would always keep me happy by loading his refrigerator up, fr- his fridge up with his famous mac and cheese. I don't know if it was famous, but it was really good, especially when it was cold. And he would put Snickers bars in the freezer and Michelob light in the fridge. And he would always have a carton of marble lights. I mean, this was a really great role model for me. Let me tell you, I loved it. So I'd have my friends come over. When he went away, I would cat sit for him and I'd have my friends come over and we'd drink the beer and eat the mac and cheese and eat the Snickers bars and smoke the cigarettes and play music. And we were having a grand old time. This is like really kind of an exciting thing for a 15-year-old, trust me. And one time I had a party with all my little girlfriends and we got a little looted and we all started kissing each other. I'm serious. I mean, and my sister showed up and she saw us all kissing each other. And I thought she was going to scream and run home and tell my mother. But then she said, ah, so what? I thought about doing that a million times. I think it was one of the cooler moments of my relationship with my sister, I gotta say. So I guess the entertaining bug set up in me early. And then as I grew up, I wound up living in a very poor section of Brooklyn. And I was really a starving artist. I was living on almost nothing. But I would get these care packages from my mother. And they were almost always Hebrew National Salami, or particularly Hebrew National Hot Dogs. And... So it's some kind of pasta because she was getting four boxes for a dollar, usually Ronzoni for some reason. Other various things. She tended to give me lots of Burger King napkins for some reason and lots of underwear that was 20 sizes too big. But I would cook the pasta and I would cut up the hot dogs and I would saute the hot dogs and mix something else in it, whatever I had. It might be tomato sauce. If it was often ragu, tomato sauce would show up. And I would mix it up with the pasta and I would entertain. I would have these parties, my hot dog pasta parties, and everyone else had to bring the drinks, which worked out well for me because they had to leave leftovers. And often I would have a whole fridge full of beer and wine. And all I had to do was cook up some hot dogs and spaghetti. It was a pretty good deal. So I learned early on this entertaining thing isn't so bad, except for the cleanup part. That's kind of a bummer. And then later on, I became a bartender. And I was a pretty great bartender, if I do say so myself. It wasn't about the drink making. I mean, anyone can go and learn how to make a drink. It was about the entertaining part. I mean, when was the last time you went to a bar and the bartender really had a personality and would tell you jokes and stories and you would want to spend the whole day with them? That was my scene. I had like my 30 regulars and they would come in every day and I would tell them jokes and stories and we'd have a great time. The problem was that they never, ever, ever wanted to leave. And that got to be a problem because the kitchen would close. 
usually like this one bar and grill I worked, worked at Trivia in Manhattan on 21st between 5th and 6th. Back then, it was a pretty quiet block. And so the kitchen would close, I guess, around 9 or 10 at night. And I would be stuck with all these people who were just drinking with nothing to eat. And, I, and they would start to get sick or loud or things would get out of control. So I thought, I better do something here. So I went into the kitchen and I would find leftover things from lunch, which was the busy time. So there would be like mozzarella sticks. There were always vats of corn chips. There was usually a lot of salsa. So I would take the corn chips and I'd put it on a pizza pan. And I would put whatever cheese I could find. Could be cheddar cheese from the cheeseburgers. Could be mozzarella from the mozzarella sticks. Could be American cheese from some grilled cheese thing. You know, whatever cheese I could find. I would put it on top of the chips. And then I would put salsa on top of that. And then I would look for something else to put on top of that. If we had a meatball special, I would put meatballs on top of that. If we had a hot dog special, I would put sliced up hot dogs on top of that or a buffalo chicken shredded up on top of that or you know whatever we had I'd put on top of that and I'd stick it in the oven just till the cheese melted and out would come this giant nacho extravaganza and I gotta say everyone loved it I mean granted it was free and they were wasted out of their gourd but everyone loved it and I loved the whole entertaining thing and so after a while I was like you know what I really like the cooking and entertaining thing. I don't really like talking to drunk people all day and night. So I think I'm just going to become a chef, thinking somehow that would lead me to entertaining, right? Of course, it didn't quite work out that way because my first many jobs were more about my spending hours and hours and hours chopping onion and peeling potatoes and skewering something on a shish kebab I had to make once 3,000 or so shish kebabs and 3,000 crab cakes. I mean, it was more like more like being a factory worker than an entertainer. But eventually I got through that and I was able to start entertaining for a living. And so sometimes I really get involved. I really, really, really get to tell my clients the best way to do it and how to do it. And sometimes, unfortunately, my clients come in and they just know exactly what they want to do. And no matter how lousy an idea it is, they just demand to do what they want to do. And the customer is always right, right? So like the ones who just want to have people drinking forever without food. So I'm like, I'm like, well, you're going to get people sick. You're going to get people drunk. It's going to ruin the wedding, you know, and usually I can talk them into listening to me, but every once in a while, they just think they know better, and you know what? They never do. I'm sorry if you're one of my customers and you're listening to me, you know it's true. So I'm going to give you some advice. If you have a party or a wedding or anything, let's say your guests arrive at 6, and they have some hors d'oeuvres till 7 or 7.30, and then you do some speeches or toasts or dancing or whatever you want to do. And then you have a dinner from eight till nine and some more dancing and fun. And then you have dessert at 10 and some more dancing and fun. So I'm going to say the longest you can hang on to people if the last thing they ate was 1030, the longest you should hang on to them is midnight. 
if you don't want to give them anything else to eat. If you're providing an open bar and there's going to be an hour and a half uh, drinking with no food and the last thing anyone ate was pure sugar, eventually you're going to have some problems. So if you decide that you want to go till 1, 2 in the morning, you need to either send out for pizza or I have lots of cute ideas like a big, a big soft salty pretzel is a great idea. A sandwich, a great sandwich, a pastrami sandwich. I do a pastrami and pretzel sandwich that'll melt your heart. But you need to introduce some food. So, or just end your friggin' party at midnight. Come on, isn't that enough? Six to midnight is long enough, I think, right? Get over yourself. Anyway, my two cents. And the other thing I want to say about entertaining is if you want to make your life easy, do not do all your cooking at the last minute. You're going to have a nervous breakdown. There's all sorts of things you can do. You've heard me talk endlessly about my barbecued brisket because I love making it. I love serving it. I love eating it. Would you know that I can make, very often I'll make a great barbecue brisket and purposely make a lot more than I need. And I'll put it into a half tin container, aluminum container, wrap it up really well and wrap that up with saran wrap, plastic wrap outside of the container and put it in the freezer. So right now I have two half tins of perfect barbecue brisket in my freezer. And then what I do when I'm having an event where I want a great hors d'oeuvre is I take out my barbecue brisket out of the freezer, put it in the fridge to thaw. Now here's all the great things I do with that. Steamed buns, Chinese steamed buns. You buy, they're frozen, but Chinese steamed buns. You put them in the steamer. You can use a bamboo steamer. We have a metal pan with holes in it that we use. You just want to steam them till they're soft. And then you heat up your barbecue brisket. You do that ahead of time. And you kind of chop it a little bit so you have small pieces. And you put your barbecue brisket in your Chinese steamed bun. And there's all sorts of other things you can do. You can put a nice slice of dill pickle, that'd probably be my favorite, or some pickled onions. That's kind of a great thing. Now, that's an award-winning hors d'oeuvre. Other things you can do, you can just go out and get those nice slider rolls. Martin slider buns are great, like the soft potato rolls. And you can do barbecue brisket sliders with, again, a slice of red onion or a slice of dill pickle or some pickled onions really, really great. It makes people really happy. So let's say you're having a party. You could have made that brisket three months ago, put it in the fridge, and now you've got, like you're bringing the house down with this great hors d'oeuvre. You know, it doesn't have to be so stressful and irritating. Entertaining can be fun. I used to have dinner parties once a week, you know, before I became a caterer. Now, granted, I don't do it very often because, you know, I'm a caterer. But you're not, right? So, unless you are, maybe you are. But if you're not, get to it. And even if you are, get to it. So, all that to say that life is short, go check out New Bedford, Massachusetts. It's pretty cool. And if you're in a city that's on the rise, hooray. And if you're in a city that's going downhill, I'm sorry. But have faith because they seem to bounce back eventually just like people do. Sometimes you know someone, they're really kind of going through a downward spiral. Don't give up on them. Just maybe they'll come back. You could kind of fan the fumes of hope a little bit, but don't let anyone drag you down. That's a different thing. That's sort of a codependent thing. We're not going to go there. 
So now Provincetown, I love you. But like I said, you need to start doing some affordable housing or you're going to lose, totally lose your cool. You're on your way to losing your cool. So I'm officially marking you in the danger zone of losing your cool. You're, you were seeming a little too Hamptons to me this trip. I noticed it and it kind of made me sad. So that's why I kind of started checking out New Bedford to tell you the truth because I'm looking for a place that still has a pulse and still might be affordable. That's how I roll. This is Rossi for Raging and Eating. And as always, food is love and so are you. Now go out and do some entertaining.